it's Friday night. I haven't seen you guys in a while. Everyone doing well this evening? Woohoo! Yay! Um, we're coming in for a landing tonight on the Book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets is what they're often called. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the only Italian prophet, Malachi. His, that's my joke for tonight. Uh, it's, he's not Italian. He's Italian. I'm going to let somebody r run with that. If you uh, find the New Testament, Matthew's the first Bible, and you go one or one, he's the first book in that, um, in the New Testament, go ahead and turn one back, and you've found your way to Malachi. We're going um, to read the first three verses in just a few minutes, but before we do that, let's pray, and then I want to set the scene for Malachi. So, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we love you. We're desperate for you, and we will, and we are, and we have been filled by you. Thank you that you have not left us orphans, but you are with us, and your kingdom is coming, and it will come. And so this evening, we don't want it to be clever words. We don't want it to be, um, we don't want it, we need something more than just a talk. We need gospel and we need resurrection life coursing through our veins and through us into the city. And so we ask, as best we know how is your church, we say, come and do that this evening. Come speak, Lord, for your children are listening. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Um, so let's set the stage for Malachi. Um, the year is 430 BC in the Far East. Um, well, it'd be this way. In the Far East, Confucius has just died a few decades before in the West. The Greek tragedy, Oedipus Rex, perhaps you've heard of it, we're not going to talk about it, oh, is just being performed for the first time, and little baby Plato is being born in Athens in the midst of a city struggling with plague. And um, here, kind of in the middle, on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, we've got the citizens of Jerusalem struggling with, like, really Big questions. See, their grandparents had um, arrived as children to help resettle the city. Um, their parents, they, they'd been in, living in Babylon. They'd maybe born in Babylon, come help resettle the city. And their parents had lived through like these great cultural revolutions when people like the great priests scholar Ezra had like regrounded everybody in the entire nation in the tradition of Moses and devotion to Yahweh their God and and the great governor Nehemiah had rebuilt the city's infrastructure and, and security and and the previous governor Zerubbabel he'd rebuilt the great temple of Solomon <laughs> that had been torched like 150 years before with war. That's about as ancient. So for these people, that's about, um, he rebuilt it. And that's about as far back as um, the burning of Atlanta is for um, us with the American Civil War. Um, where we have boomers and Gen Xers and Millennials and Gen Z, they had resettlers and then reformers and then rebuilders. And now we've got like a generation right here in the middle of this big wide world just kind of like, and they're 
I think they're the generation that just is like looking around and can we, can we just call ourselves the tired? Is what they're, like, we, we can't even come up with an R word to finish this. Like, they're asking questions like this. They're asking questions like, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? Like, who are we? What, if, what are we doing here? I mean, the city's been rebuilt and the temple is over there templing, you know, and we're doing our thing and we've settled back into our home. But in this great, big, expansive world, are we? What are we supposed to be doing? Like, it's all well and good that, like, parents and grandparents, like, they followed the way of Yahweh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, we're still going through the motions. Yeah, we're doing that. We bring our animals for sacrifices. Sure. I mean, not the great ones. <laughs> like, the, the really gross ones are the ones. You know, they're just going to kill them, after all. And, like, it's great that our parents and our grandparents, but we haven't seen any miracles. We haven't done, we, we didn't walk through the sea with Moses or experience deliverance in battle or hear the word of Yahweh coming through the prophets. We need to paint this picture to help us recognize, um, I, I think something central, that hard questions about identity, meaning, and purpose are nothing new. And if that's where you are this evening, like struggling through like questions of like, who am I? What am I doing here? These questions are nothing new. In fact, the people of God have wrestled with them already. Um, I, uh, most of us, many of us experience these at different junctures in our lives more profoundly than others. I grew up in Georgia, and so my grandparents had this lake house up in the North Georgia mountains, and I would, uh, I would spend weeks there in, my, in the summers, and I can remember like the season in my life, you know, it's like a late teenager, early 20s, you guys know the season, that like you're, uh, I, would go, I would slip out of the cabin in the dark of night, and I would just go sit on on the dock, like, of this lake, and, like, my bare feet are, like, dangling in the water, and the, the stars, like, canopied over my head, and I would just, like, be sitting there thinking about the future, you know, and, like, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing in the world? Like, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? And some of us have asked, walked into um, the room this evening, and maybe we're at like that juncture in our lives right now. We're asking those same sorts of questions. They pop up throughout life. Like many of like 2020, if you didn't, I know we'll keep bringing up 2020, but man, it's like a year of cultural revolutions, and it feels like the world's changing on us, and technology is changing so quickly. And maybe the kids are in a new phase of life, and you're like asking, what's going on? Who? Or like maybe you just retired, and you're trying to figure out like, how do I orient myself? Or, or maybe that relationship just ended and like fresh, with fresh eyes, you're saying, what in the, for whatever reason, we just like feel maybe like we're just adrift. We're like just going through the motions. We're just kind of doing our thing. We find ourselves asking the exact same questions that fifth century, late fifth century Israel, sounds fancy when you say it that way, doesn't it? Uh, is asking. In this great big world, we feel like, lost, confused, like, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? And enter the prophet Malachi, because he can help us answer these questions about our feeling lost. And he's going to do that with three, we're going to make three movements tonight. The first is we're going to answer the, we're gonna help, he's going to help us answer the question, what does it mean to be lost? And the second one is, who is lost. And then third, we're going to say, how are the lost found? And then I think by the end, we'll 
have a little bit clearer picture of who we are and what we're doing here. And so this tired generation of the 5th century Israel wanted to hear a prophet. And so be careful what you ask for because here comes Malachi coming out of the gate swinging. Malachi chapter 1 verse 1 through 3. A prophecy. The word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. Through Malachi. Uh, I'm done with that. Um, Verse 2. I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to desert jackals. This is the word of the Lord. We'll say, thanks be to God for the desert jackals. <laughs> the book of Malachi is actually structured as like a series of confrontations between God and his people. You can see it like right as we begin right here. In verse 2, Yahweh says, I have loved you. How? The people shoot back. How have you loved us? It's like we're watching something that we really shouldn't be watching. You know, like the beginning, like a fly on the wall watching, like like the beginning of a lover's quarrel or something. Maybe something we shouldn't be seeing, you know. It's like maybe one of those television shows where they bring people onto a stage like this. And then they talk about like really personal things and somehow like everyone's chanting Jerry Jerry by the by the end it's like that sort of like well if you love me well I can't see it is what it's like Israel saying to God right here we're launched into like straight into the book through a series of confrontations where God is basically saying to his people chapter one he's like I have loved you even though verse six you despise my name you're insulting my temple. You're, verse 8, you're carting in the grossest animals for sacrifice. This is like a joke to you. You're, chapter 2, verse 11, you're cheating on me like a spouse cheats on. Like, chapter 3, verse 8, you are acting like a bandit. That's what he says. You're robbing me. But make no mistake, I've loved you. I love you. I love you still. The opening of this book is kind of famous. Uh, God is looking at this current generation living in rebuilt Israel, and he's saying, of course I've loved you. Just look around. You're still here, is what he's saying in these first three verses. The family of Esau, you know, those Edomites that were conquered and wiped out, they're gone. But the family of Jacob, like, you're still here. We've, uh, we've seen throughout this series that like the prophets use poetry to talk. Hating Esau, I just need to side note, hating Esau has nothing to do with Esau, like the, the, the literal person, the individual, and his predestined eternal destiny for those who have ears. That is not what's being talked about right here. This is a poetic way of talking about God choosing one grandson of Abraham, Jacob, not his twin brother, Esau, And I'm going to, through Jacob, I'm going to bring about a people that are going to bless the world. It's a poetic way of talking about, I've chosen you guys. You're still here. I didn't choose Esau. I chose you. You lot. I love you guys. You jokers who just can't get it right. And yet, this tired generation just can't feel it. They, They can't sense it. They can't believe it. They're like so 
utterly confused and lost, like adrift. I want to suggest this evening that Malachi is cluing us into a fundamental reality about the universe with the opening of his book, is what he's doing. We could say it this way. Doubting the endless love of God is the root of all lostness. That's why you're lost, (laughs) why you're adrift, why you're confused. What it means, number one, what it means to be lost at its heart, at its core, like in its most embryonic phase, is doubting that we are loved. We can endure a whole lot of painful things in our lives, can't we? (laughs) <laughs> for long, long stretches of time. Some of you have done it. But the pain like jumps to another level when we get turned around and lost and confused when like we feel like we're in the middle of a fog and like suddenly we've like dropped the compass somewhere, when we've lost sight of the North Star, when we can't see that though this is hard, though this is painful, I am loved. Even in this, every scheme of the enemy is aimed at making us doubt the endless, eternal, unending love of God. That is what the enemy is trying to make you doubt in every moment of your life. The deepest pain that I have experienced in my life has not come in my body I mean, that's hurt sometimes, but like in my soul. It's been moments when like the phone call arrived or the the bottom fell out in some sort of way. I was sitting at the hospital bedside with a loved one. And when slowly the doubt of God's love comes creeping in. The serpent like snakes quietly down, quietly asks, has God really loved? And I started like asking myself the same question. How has he loved me? How's, how has he loved me? I can look back over my life and I can, um, I, I can see the moments <laughs> sitting at the bedside. I can look back and I can see the moments where you carried me through wilderness and exile. I know you put me back together after that betrayal that just wrecked me and like destroyed my life. And I know that you've dug me out of debt before. And I know that you're, like, you're building up the muscles of my little girl that we thought would never walk before. And I know about my house and I know about my job and I know about my daily bread. But it's like at the drop of a hat... I can find myself saying, how have you loved me? <laughs> I don't actually have to even be in another wilderness season. I'm like, I could just be like thinking, anticipating, imagining another wilderness season. And let the doubting commence. You know, how have you loved me? I mean, I haven't seen any miracles. What have you been doing? And in my moments of clarity... In my moments of clarity, it's like I hear God whispering, like, you can't see most miracles in the same way that a fish can't see the water, Brett. What what do you mean, oh tired generation, that you haven't seen any miracles? You're living in one! You're living in one! Every single day, the mercies of God are washing over you, even on those, ter- 
Even on those terrible days and seasons when, it, when the enemy is roaring and killing and stealing and destroying, the mercies of God are deeper still washing in like the tide. And so even though we're like settled back in our home, no longer in wilderness or exile, it's easy, it's easy at the drop of a hat to get turned around, like lost and confused And as the book of the 12 is ending, this final prophet in the tradition of Israel, he's speaking, and it's really easy for us to lose sight of the startling answer to the reality of question number two, who are the lost? And Malachi answers, he says, the people of God are the lost ones as the prophets end. As the Old Testament ends, it's the people of God that are lost. I mean, everybody is kind of disoriented and lost, but like, especially God's people. The hope of the world is what they, the blessed to be a blessing, Genesis 12, 18, 28, 35, the elected, the chosen people of God, the remnant that he's carried through Babylon and exile. You haven't loved us. And it's not just the commoners that are feeling this, the everyday folk. It's like the leaders of Israel that are feeling this way. The, the elite, the priests themselves, they're hopelessly lost too. They're the ones like accepting these cartloads of disgusting, gangrene sacrifices. I puked all of that. That's okay. Throw it up on the altar. It's going up in fire anyway. Sure thing, bring those things in. Why not? None of it really matters. <laughs> none, of this, none of this really matters at all. And so Yahweh begins talking to the priests through the prophet Malachi. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, priests, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi, that was the first priest, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says Yahweh of armies, Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. I, 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 it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Verse 6, true instruction. Everyone say instruction. Instruction. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction. The word's Torah, the law, instruction. Should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of armies. But you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your Torah, your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of of Levi, says Yahweh of armies. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your Torah and your instruction. Always like all these disgusting wagon loads carting in these gross sacrifices. Well, I hate to tell you, but this whole Levitical priesthood is going to end up getting carted away just like them. Like I'm not, this is not a joke. 
None of this is the temple, the sacrifices, the Torah itself, the law that was given through Moses to the people. None of this is a joke. They were supposed to be, they were supposed to be guiding, verse 6, guiding people in true instruction. Instead, people are lost. People are like, he's, verse 8, your instruction is causing people to stumble. Last year, my, um, my oldest daughter, Daphne, was learning to ride a bike. And so when a child is learning to ride a bike, they need Torah. They need instruction. They need to know how to pedal and balance, you know, just generally, like, ride a bike. And so um, it would have been really treacherous of me, like, really despicable of me if I had said, if I'd given her completely incorrect Torah instruction. If I had said, well, you know what? Take off your shoes because those pedals are actually supposed to hurt a little bit when you're pumping as you're pumping. And you know what? You, what you do is, no, you, you're doing it wrong. You got to hold your, you hold the handles right here in the middle. Yeah, right there in the middle. And you, yes, I know. Yeah, that, that thing's, a, this is called a helmet. Yeah, no, silly. Well, you take that off your head. That's actually, you see how it's shaped like a bowl? What we do is we fill this up with candy and we eat it later when we're on our way to the hospital is what we do like that that would be treacherous right it's kind of awful for me to even say scratch that from the record I never said it um that's effectively what the priests are doing they're the ones that should be instructing the people so that they are not confused or lost and yet they are leading the people into disaster It's the people of God, even the priests of God, who are hopelessly lost as the Old Testament ends. We hear this reality actually named explicitly in the the back half of the book of Malachi, verse 7 of chapter 3. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says Yahweh Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? It's not the world out there that God's talking to. It's his own people. It's us who have gotten lost. God's calling the lost, his own people, to shuv, to repent, to turn, to come home. The light of the world will return to your eyes if you'll just open your eyes. It will be filled with it. But truth be told, we don't know how is the thing. We're, we're often like living turned around and lost and confused, doubting the endless love of God. And it's not that I don't want to return. It's not like I, like I, that I like painfully wandering around in a fog. I just don't know how. And this is the way that the prophets, that the Old Testament ends. No, take it back. It actually gets worse. Because chapter 2, verse 17 says, You have wearied Yahweh with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, this is what Israel's apparently saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So the prophets don't just end with us being lost. The prophets end with God being exhausted. 
God being, you have wearied Yahweh. Nobody sees the miracle that we're all swimming in. We're all just confused and hurting and wondering, why do bad things happen to good people? And what's going on? And probably, you know what it probably is? It's probably because God's a jerk who really actually delights in in evildoers. Or maybe it's just the fact that he's never really been there at all. Where's the God of justice? This is the the end of the Old Testament with everybody lost and God exhausted. And here's the good news. How we get found, how the lost get found, do you know what God says in all of his weariness? Do you know what a wearied God looks like? Very next verse, you've wearied God, 2.17. Next verse, 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This is God talking. And the Lord whom you speak, who you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says Yahweh of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire and the full soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify, he'll purify, oh, the sons of Levi. He'll purify them and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to Yahweh. And so God is promising that he himself will come to the temple, and some kind of messenger is going to be preparing his way. And when he arrives, he is going to scrub everyone clean. Even verse 3, even those filthy, treacherous, dung-faced priests are going to get cleaned in the process. It's going to, verse 2, it's going to be like bleach on a fabric or metal in a fire. But the lost are not going to stay lost. The filthy will not stay filthy. Not because you're returning to me. No, it's actually because I'm going to burn your death down. I'm going to burn you down to salvation, is what God is promising. I'm going to burn you down to joy, and I'm going to set you ablaze with life. Is what, can I give you some encouragement this evening? To a tired generation, can I give some encouragement? None of us return to God. No one does. No one knows how to return, but God is returning to us. Yeah, it's, it's worth celebrating that God is always returning to us before we are returning to God. The, the light will return to your eyes if you'll only just... Crap, your, eye, your eyes are blind. Okay, so the light of the world becomes one of us so that he can give the blind sight. <laughs> Many of us in the room feel like maybe we have wearied God. Maybe you have. Let's go with that for just a second. This week, my children have actually wearied me. <laughs> two, two different nights this week, um, we've woken up with one of our girls screaming out in the middle of the night, piercing. Like one night, Daisy um, had a nightmare, and the other night, Daisy or Daphne somehow like bit down on like a loose tooth that she has in her mouth, and it hurt apparently. So screaming, middle of the night. <laughs> and then 
the rush of adrenaline starts to fade and the weariness settles back in. And what does a parent do in all their weariness? I held them. I told them, I'm right here. I've got you. I've got you. With our younger, I I climbed in bed with her is what I did. Because though they weary me, weariness does not hold a candle to my love for them. And so tell me, what does God do in all of his weariness? Well, I'll tell you, he takes on flesh and he allows his cousin, his messenger, John the Baptist, to announce his coming to the temple and he returns to us. What will God do in all of his weariness? Well, God purifies the treacherous and the despicable. God washes traitors covered in filth. God finds the lonely. God leaves the 99. He tells a story about it. Because he loves you. He loves the one. God heals the sick. God saves sinners. And when we, in all of our wretched lostness, despise our weary God who's come among us, because we somehow secretly relish being lost, when we spit on him, he turns the other cheek. When we torture him, he speaks and prays forgiveness over us. And when we finally extinguish the light of the world, by nailing him to the tree, what will our weary God do? Well, our weary God opens the grave, breaks the tomb, and raises the dead, and then he finds the treacherous on the beach, and he offers us a meal, is what he does. Though we slay him, still he lives, still he loves, still he climbs into bed with us. And I want to tell you, Right now, in this moment, right here, right now, this Friday night, what's happening in your heart, that burning in your heart, your desire to return is the beginning of your return. And it's actually God at work doing the returning. It's the gentle spirit at work, beloved, returning you to himself. There's a saintly man, Brother Roger, of, um, and he said this. He said, I think it's so apt. Right at the depth of the human condition lies the longing for a presence, the silent desire for a communion. We could maybe add the ache to return. Let us never forget that the simple desire for God is already the beginning of faith. It's, so if you feel lost and confused, this evening you are invited to trust that you will not be forever. You will no longer, let's just do this. You will no longer be called tired. You will be a returner. You will be, there's the R that we were looking for earlier. You will be a returner. You will be whole. You will be complete. You will be fulfilled, not because of your faithfulness, but because of God's to you. Even though you feel like the world is burning around you, you are invited to trust, as we sang earlier, that God too is in the flames. And he will use all things to make you alive. And so, who am I? Who am I? Well, I am 
endlessly loved. And what am I supposed to be doing? Well, I get to love. God God is seeking my good, and I get to seek the good of others because God's taking care of me. He's taking care of my good. That's what Jesus named as the only true instruction, the only true Torah, the essence of the law. It's love. It's love, and we overcomplicate it. And so maybe this week, this weekend, and as we're entering into another week, maybe we could ask the question, how can I begin to open myself up a little bit more to God's love? How can I do that this week? Maybe for you it's breathing in silence. Maybe it's singing at the top of your lungs. In the car maybe is the place you can find. Reading the scriptures. Taking a day off. Taking an hour off maybe. Or getting out in nature. Doing something that you love and Being grateful before God with it. Maybe you could ask the question, how is it that I can love this person in front of me this week? (laughs) Like that friend, that spouse, that coworker, that child, that client, that enemy. How can I seek their good? Because I often feel like most confused and most lost when I'm overcomplicating God's instruction. Like, I am worrying about the future. I'm fretting about the past. I'm angry about things outside of my control. And I feel lost and confused because I've overcomplicated my part in the story. As the band is coming this evening, I invite you, do not overcomplicate love. Our love is going to be endless because God's love is endless. And we are already deeply found as we're beginning to believe that endless love. And so Jesus, we recognize that you love us, you care for us, you are forgiving us despite our sin. And in your new life that you freely share with us, you're offering us a meal. You're offering us new life. And so we ask that you would do that. We don't want to be lost and confused like the people of Israel. We want to be found in your love. And so Jesus... Awaken us to the depths and the widths and the heights of your endless love for us. Grant it, we ask, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, would you stand with me tonight and get your communion elements ready? If you don't have communion elements, we've got some ladies here that are walking around. You can just raise your hand and they'll come find you. Love how Brett there was talking about not overcomplicating it. To live this kind of life of love, we need strength. And how does Jesus give us strength? He feeds us. He gives us a meal. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he looks his people in the eyes, his friends, and he says, this is my body 
which is broken for you. I'm calling you to live a remarkable life, but I'll empower you to live this life. So church tonight, would you close your eyes and just encounter the love of Jesus. Let him look you in the eyes tonight. Let him feed you tonight. Let him strengthen you tonight. Let him make you the returner tonight. Jesus, we need you to heal us. We need you to feed us. We need you to strengthen us to live this life of love. So he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do this for the remembrance of me. You may receive the bread. I want to pay particular attention to the cup tonight because Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant given in my blood and it's given for the remission of your sins. All of us drag our baggage to the table of the Lord and it is some weeks it's just, it's too much, it's heavy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We carry wounds, we carry pain, we carry confusion. And Jesus says, I've washed it away. I've forgiven you. It's okay. You're clean tonight. So Jesus, we receive the cleansing from sin that only you can give. We receive a fresh start that only you can give. We receive the newness that is you. So church tonight, your sins have been washed away and do this for the remembrance of Jesus. You may receive the cup. Now let's lift our voices and sing to the Lord tonight. Let's respond in worship. Crazy. 
into then on the third at break of dawn, Lisa leaned over to me. She doesn't, she's never done this. So I thought, said, why don't you come just share that? Come tell me, come tell them what you told me. So Lisa. Well, I just was, man, I'll get emotional, but I take after my husband, I guess. <laughs> um, so many, what Brett was talking about, I thought so many of us have dreams that we think have died not just we're in a season of weariness, but there's a dream that the Lord's put in your heart and it's not gone. He hasn't forgotten about it. It's there. He's just waiting for the right time. So lean into that, lean into this and remember that 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 isn't something you imagined. It's not something that you just made up in your head. The Lord put it there and he's gonna in the right time, keep being faithful, keep showing up, keep doing what you're doing. You better preach, Lisa Grothy. So we're about to sing then on the third, the third day, like when he was dead. At break of dawn, the son of heaven rose again. And so can your dreams, all right? So let's bring those dreams that have died and let's gather those up and let's worship. Come on, let's sing then on the third. Two, three. On the third.
so we say, Jesus, over those dead dreams, come forth. Come forth. Come forth. Hey, Lazarus, come on out of there. On the third at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. And so will you. And so will your life. And so will your dreams. And so will your relationships. And so will every bit of death that you have carried come forth. Come forth. Come forth. say worthy is the lamb worthy is the lamb for you are holy singing at you
blessing of God Almighty over you tonight. Just to be in his presence, man. Whew. I just feel blessed. Tonight was good for us. So, Lord, for my friends, you know every question, you know every ache, you know every dream, you know every fear, you know every hope and, and joy, you know every dream for the future. I pray, bless them, bless them, bless them, bless them, bless them. Keep them. Make your face to shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Lord, smile big. Lift your countenance upon them, I pray. And grant them peace tonight in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Can we thank God? I say just great sermon, Brett. Great sermonette, Lisa Grothy. Y'all came to preach. So go from here tonight. We'll have the prayer team down front. If you want someone to come pray with you, we would love to do that. But go from here tonight in God's grace and his peace. Much love.